So John 17, or excuse me, 11, John 11, 17 through 44, and we'll just go ahead and start right off by reading our passage this morning. Okay. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went up and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, right now, um, I just pray that as your word kind of just sinks in, that you would open up our hearts to hear it be challenged where we need to be challenged, to be comforted where we need to be comforted, mostly to have a fuller revelation of who you are and where we're at with you. And I pray, Lord, today that we would see and experience life, the life that you give, and have peace because of you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so in this series for the book of John, as many of you know, we've been looking at uh, John through the lens of the various signs that Jesus performs. Jesus says in the end that, uh, John says at the end that Jesus had performed many miracles, many wonders, but these signs that he picks are handpicked because they function as signs. What does a sign do? A sign points beyond itself. Right? It points to something down the road that is coming. So what you see is not just the event, but the event represents something greater. And in this case, it's the the death and resurrection of Jesus himself that's coming. And so he's 
giving us this story as this great sign that shows who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And this is the last, the seventh and the last sign that Jesus performs in John's gospel before the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it acts as a transition into the second half of the book, which is all about the hour of Jesus' glory. So some people call the first half of the book of John the book of signs, and they call the second half the book of glory. And we're moving from the book of signs into the book of glory here. John sets the stage for us in the previous, previous verses that we didn't read, but from them we can get three big points. One, Jesus loved this family very much. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It says so blatantly in the passage. It also says that when the messenger came to Jesus to deliver the news that Lazarus was sick, they came and said, uh, Lord, the one you love is sick. We, we also see this because Mary, Martha, and Lazarus figure in some of the other gospels as well. Maybe you remember the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus is in the house and um, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, it says, sort of soaking in his teaching. Martha is busy in the kitchen, and she gets frustrated, and she says, Lord, tell her to come and help me. And, and Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're so troubled with, with all the busy work, um, but Mary has chosen the better thing, and it's not going to be taken from her. And what we don't usually get out of that story just by reading it is that it it shows us that Jesus has a special relationship with Mary as a, as a rabbi does to a disciple because the words to sit at someone's feet, that was a figure of speech. That was a phrase that meant discipleship, official discipleship, to sit at the feet of a teacher and to be accepted by that rabbi as your student. And the scandalous thing was women were not allowed to do that. Okay, so, so Mary is taking the position of a learner at a rabbi's feet, just like Paul when he's kind of giving his credentials as a Pharisee before he met Jesus, says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, this great teacher. Um, so, so here's Mary posturing herself in a position that women are not allowed to do. Martha sees that and says, this is not appropriate. Tell her to come in and help me. And Jesus says, no, this isn't going to be taken from her. So there's a special relationship here, and that might explain why when Martha comes and gets Mary, summons Mary to come to Jesus, the word she uses for him is the teacher, right? She comes and says, the teacher is here and he's asking for you. And so she gets up and goes out to him instead of the Lord or Jesus and so on. So we know that Jesus has a special relationship with this family. Also, Jesus uh, seems to have known that Lazarus was going to die, and he seems to have known that he was going to wait to raise him from the dead. He waits two more days before coming back to Judea. And there's a few reasons for that, but one, supposedly there was this rabbinical teaching that when a person dies, as uh, Max, the miracle worker from The Princess Bride says, they're only mostly dead. You know, for three days or so, right? There's the, supposedly the, the, the soul or the essence of a person would kind of hover over the body for a few days, waiting to see if there's an opportunity to re-enter it. But once the body starts to decompose and an odor sets in, then they're really dead. There's no coming back from that. They're dead as a doornail. There's no return at that point. And so Jesus seems to be waiting for that point before he returns to Judea. But there's another reason why he delays, uh, because Jesus knows that if he goes to Bethany in Judea, it's going to cost him his life. Okay, if he raises Lazarus, he will pay a price. And that's where we left off last week with Mark and his message that he gave us about the good shepherd. Jesus finally left because the Jews there were trying to kill him. And so he fled. He went back across the Jordan into the wilderness, and now it's looking like he's going to come back. And he knows that if he does, he's going to die. The disciples say, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you want to go back? And when Jesus informs them of the reason for his return, Thomas states, let us also go, that we may die with him. It's kind of ironic if you know the story of what happens with Thomas later. And sure enough, it's this event that seals the deal. This is a very public miracle. A lot of people witness it. 
And the word spreads like wildfire so that when the Passover week begins, everyone's on tiptoe wondering if Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem and bring a revolution with him. Uh, The Pharisees, they call a meeting with the Sanhedrin and they decide this is just too much. The Romans are going to crack down on us if Jesus doesn't die. We have to kill him. So that's the point at which they decide for sure affirmatively, that Jesus needs to be done away with. And Caiaphas, the high priest, says that he's had a prophecy and, and, and that he says, don't you know that it's better for one man to die for all the people than for all the people to die? And he wouldn't even know how true that statement is and what it actually means. So Jesus is going to Judea to die so that Lazarus and all those who would believe in Jesus might live. Notice how when Mary arrives in Bethany, Jesus doesn't go into the home. He keeps a distance. Martha comes out to him. Why? Well, John tells us why. The reason is that many of the Jews had come over from Jerusalem to comfort Mary and Martha. And when John uses the term the Jews, we need to keep a few things in mind. One, John is not being an anti-Semitist. He was Jewish. Jesus himself was Jewish. But when John wrote this gospel, the church was facing persecution from the Jews, and usually it's meant to uh, refer to a group of people associated with Jerusalem, and, and those Jews in particular. And so these are the people that are coming in mass to comfort Mary and Martha, some of whom had believed in Jesus but didn't really want to admit it, and some of them directly opposed Jesus and wanted to kill him. And so Jesus doesn't want to create a stir, an uproar. And so Martha goes out to him. Now, we're not very familiar with death in this way in our culture. Uh, In Middle Eastern culture, there's a big tradition. The person is buried on the first day, and then there's six days of official mourning where the family doesn't even leave the home, and friends and relatives, they come and they comfort them for six days. So it's kind of surprising that Mary and Martha actually leave their home in the first place. Uh, But in our country, in our nation, our culture, we sort of sterilize death a little bit. We try to make it more palatable, more invisible. We hide it in the nursing homes, in the hospitals, um, in, in the rest homes. We have hospice. We have people who come and clean up death for us. We, it's ugly, and it's, it's messy, and it's brutal. Um, my grandma spent some time in uh, the, the, the Everett Hospital this week, and uh, she doesn't have cancer, but they had to put her in the cancer ward to care for her for what she was dealing with, and just the descriptions of, of what they saw in there. It's like, oh yeah, we don't see that very often. Um, but that's not the case in other countries. I remember going to India. The first two dead bodies that I saw in my life were in India. The first one was a man who had just been hit by a truck on the way to go to the Taj Mahal, which was a four-hour drive. And when we got to the Taj Mahal, we found it was closed. So we were having a pretty bad day. And then a guide said, well, I can take you around to a really good vantage point by the river if you give me 20 rupees. And so we did, we go around and there's a body floating in the river and it's, it's a child and they had you know, put flowers all around and floated this child down the river. And now in other, other countries, you see death. It's a lot more prominent. It's right in front of your face. It's pretty normal over there. I watched a documentary this week. Maybe you've seen it. It's on Netflix. It's called Tales by Light. It's about photographers who go to extreme conditions to photograph um, some unique Things. And one of them was a guy who was kind of obsessed with death because he had been on the ground in Rwanda during the genocide and he had been moved and disturbed by the amount of death all around him that had taken place. And it probably kind of screwed him up. I don't know. But uh, so he kind of went on this mission of like, can I find a positive side of death? Can I see death in a different light? And that led him to India where the ultimate desire is when you die to, to be released at the Ganges River at a certain city, at a certain point. And so what they do, because it's such a popular destination to go after you die, 
um, they have this place on the beach by the water in the river where they're continually just lighting bodies on fire. And uh, there's processions of families who just carry their, de- their loved ones' bodies down to the riverside. And this is where they, this ritual takes place. And for them, it's kind of a joyful celebratory occasion. And they don't seem to have any problem with the fact that there's a body burning in front of them or that they're carrying a body through the streets. And this guy was kind of encouraged by that. I'm looking at it and I'm going, this is not comfortable. Like, this is really disturbing. And maybe it's my naive Western mind who doesn't understand because we're so sheltered from death over here. Or maybe it's something else. How are we supposed to think about death and suffering? How are we supposed to regard it? What's God's view on it? How does Jesus react to it? And that's what we're here to find out. Do we hide it and pretend it doesn't exist? So that when it does emerge, it completely throws us for a loop and wrecks us? Do we think like the Eastern practices that parade it in front of people, no big deal, and celebrate it as kind of a rite of passage off into the next netherworld, the the better life? Do we act stoically and simply accept it and move on, make peace with death, go boldly into the night? Do we reject it and fight it at all costs? How do we handle death? So we see Jesus here, he offers a future hope in the face of death. He weeps in response to the present reality of death. He rages against death, we'll get into that a little bit. And he finally defeats and destroys death. And that's the picture that we have. But we also get a window into who Jesus is and what he's doing and the depths of his love in the way that he handles death. So that's what we're going to see here. When Martha comes out to meet Jesus, what does she say? She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then when Mary comes out to Jesus, what does she say? The exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And interestingly enough, Jesus' responses to the two sisters are com- is completely different, which is really remarkable. Because with Martha, you get kind of a head-level response. He speaks the truth. He argues. He's not harsh with her by any means, but he kind of sets her straight. With Mary, he doesn't even say anything. He simply sees her weeping. He sees the Jews who are with her weeping. And he enters right into their pain and he weeps with them. What does that tell us about Jesus? It tells us a couple things. First of all, that Jesus knows what you need. He knows what we need. He is the wonderful counselor. He loved this family deeply. So how does he respond? As a minister... Uh, when I was being brought into the, the full-time preaching position here, I remember feeling comfortable enough with the idea of preaching, that part of the job, but I had a lot of anxiety about the prospect of counseling people in their times of need. When people come to my office with their problems, what in the world uh, do you do with that? That's because I'm aware of my own human limitations and inability to meet people where they're at and really be able to discern what they actually need. But Jesus is the wonderful counselor who knows exactly what we need. Sometimes we need a firm hand. Sometimes we need a good dose of truth. And that's not fun if you're in my position. You know that people might reject it, or get upset or offended if you try to tell the truth as you see it. But that's one thing that love does. But other times, what we really need is for someone to enter into our grief with us. I had a family, actually a husband and wife, came into my office some years ago, uh, and they were grief-stricken because their daughter had just attempted suicide. And it totally caught them off guard and threw them for a loop. And as I'm sitting there, I I listen to them. 
I prayed with them. You know, we dialogued a little bit. We threw some things around back and forth. Mostly just tried to comfort them. And, and when they left, I, I'm sitting there thinking, man, I don't know what in the world they must think of me because I don't feel like I did anything. Like, I, I, I didn't have anything for them. I didn't really meet their need. I didn't know what to do, what to tell them. I recommended some counselors maybe, you know. Uh, when I saw them later, they thanked me profusely. And they said, thank you so much. That was perfect. That was exactly what we needed. And I'm going, what? You know? Because what they needed was for someone to just sit with them, you know, someone to hear them, someone to weep with them, someone to pray with them. That's, that's what they needed at that time. And I didn't even know it, but I had met that need. Sometimes that's all we need. Jesus knows exactly what you need. He knows the right response. And he can bring it. He can bring it through people. He can bring it in prayer. He can bring it through his word. And that's one implication of his two responses to Mary and Martha. But the other is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He says, your brother will, ri will rise again. At first, Mary receives this as a consolation for a future hope. The Bible teaches that at the end of time, all of the dead will be resurrected to a new bodily existence just like Jesus was. Some to everlasting joy and peace and some to everlasting pain and contempt. Mary thinks that this is what Jesus is saying. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is saying he is the resurrection and the life. What does that mean? One commentary that I had said, Jesus does not say that he can provide resurrection in life, though that is implicit. And that in itself would be astounding. In other words, eternal life and rescue from the finality of death are not merely gifts attained by appeal to God. They are aspects of what it means to live a life in association with Jesus. If Jesus is life, then those who believe in him will enjoy the confidence and power over death known by him. This does not mean that Jesus' followers will not die a physical death, but that life will be theirs beyond the grave. They will not suffer death eternally. Moreover, they will have a life now and do not have to await the end of human time and history in order to enjoy the benefits of Jesus' power. It's kind of like this, and this illustration will fall terribly short, but um, you know, kids are really forgetful. They forget things a lot. My kids forget their coats. They forget their money, they forget their toys, you know, wherever they go. And, and suppose that you're a kid and it's like the last day of school and you bring something that is incredibly valuable to you on that last day of school. Maybe it is, you know, it's like an heirloom passed down that your grandmother gave to you and you snuck it there to show your friends and you knew you weren't supposed to. Or, or it's like, you know, just a, a special toy or something that's extremely valuable and then you left it at school. And you tell your parents, your parents are furious and you come back and the doors are all locked, locked up, the building is dark Oh no, what's going to happen? If somebody finds it, they're going to steal it. Or if the staff finds it, they're going to donate it to you know, a thrift store or, or something like that. And, and you're just beside yourself. You're with tears. There's a, a whole summer. This building's going to be closed. And then someone's there. There's, there's a man there, a woman there. Somebody shows up and they're like, hey, what's, what's the problem? And you tell them. You tell them what you've left inside and how you're not going to be able to get it and, and how it's gone. And, and, they're, and they say... I can get it for you. It's, you'll get it. And you answer them, well, well, I know that a janitor might show up at some point and open the doors, or I know that the school's going to open at the end of the summer in three months, or, or if it's Anacortes, it's like a month and a half, something ridiculously stupid like that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> school board, take note. Um, anyway. But the, 
person standing there says, no, no, you don't get it. I'm the principal. You know, I, I've got the keys. I, can, I, can, I know the code for the alarm. I can get you in the building. We can get in there. We can get it. And that might fall short to an extent, but Jesus holds the keys, he says. He says, I am life. And all who believe in him and trust in him, they get life. And, and Jesus is saying, what you lose in death, what you fear losing in life, he's saying, I am the life. In other words, if you're in me, you've got the source. If you have me, if you know me, then I promise I've got you. No matter what. It's kind of like, you know, there's a lot of religions, there's a lot of philosophies that tell you how to handle death, what to make of death, what path you need to walk in order to be saved so that you can have eternal life and salvation or reincarnation or enlightenment or whatever that path is. There's a lot of paths out there, there's a lot of religions, there's a lot of rituals for how you approach the building to get in the door, the codes you need to enter, the keys you need to have. But Jesus is saying like, look, if you've got me, then you know a guy. And if you've got me, you can get in. I'll get you in. All you need is me. All you need is me. Because I am the life. And I am the resurrection. We watched a show downstairs last night during the progressive dinner with the kids. Smallfoot. It's about yetis. Okay, Bigfoot, yeti, you know. What a, and uh, like us, semi-believing, somewhat superstitious. They're kind of superstitious about small feet, real you know, people, human beings existing. And they're kind of locked away in their little ice world, but they're controlled by the elite authorities who have their way of life inscribed on special stone tablets that no one's allowed to question. And they hold the reins over the community and power over the community and the rules so that no one ever goes beyond the mountain or down underneath the clouds to see what's there until someone starts to question, and then they discover that a real small foot exists, and it brings chaos into the whole thing. The reality is that's not Christianity. A lot of religions are like that. You have a path, you have rules, you have disciplines, and you've got a guru, you've got a priest, you've got a prophet, you've got a, a somebody who can tell you where you're at with God, and they're going to mediate your relationship with God for you and tell you what you need to do to have that relationship. And a lot of times these people are manipulative, and they'll try to control you and hold power over you in order to uh, blackmail you. But not Christianity, not Jesus. Christianity is in, in a world in which political and religious elite are vying for control and power over people. God shows up as a man who identifies with the lowest of us and with our suffering and suffers alongside of us and says, I've got the keys. And if you've got me, then I promise I've got you. Now that's an astonishing claim, and it's no wonder that the religious authorities are so threatened by that. Because for one, means if, if it's not true, Jesus is claiming to be God. That's blasphemy. That might be a problem. That might be dangerous. But why does it enrage the Sanhedrin so much? Well, because it subverts their power. Their, their system, their authority, their control. They're threatened by Jesus. So on the one hand, we see a claim here that Jesus is fully God. No one else is the resurrection and the life. But on the one hand, we also see that Jesus is fully man. He weeps. He shows his humanity. He knows who he is. He knows he's God. He knows he can raise Lazarus from the dead. Why? Would he weep then? He's the word who's now become flesh and tabernacles among us. That is, puts on an earthly tent and dwells with us. He didn't say, stop crying. It's going to be okay. I'm going to raise him from the dead. No. 
The God-man feels. The Greek word for weeping here is that word for wailing that takes place in these Eastern-style ceremonies, mourning rituals. He's wailing loudly with them. God allows himself to be vulnerable. He puts on weakness and enters into our pain alongside of us. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The, real, the great question, where is God in the midst of suffering? Why does he allow it? Doesn't he care? Jesus isn't like Job's friends who see Job suffering and say, well, you must have done something to deserve it. What this means is that we may never know in this life the reason why we suffer. We may not know the reason why we go through the things we do, but there are a few things that we can know. For one, we can know that suffering wasn't a part of God's original intent and that he intends on ending it ultimately someday. Suffering and death entered the world through sin and human rebellion. So in a broad sense, when looking at the whole of humanity, when looking at all of our greed, all of our violence, all of our evil, suffering is exactly what we deserve. But two, God weeps with us in our suffering. Even knowing that he will one day destroy it, which means that whatever the reason for our suffering is, we may not know, but we can know the reason that it isn't. And the reason isn't that God doesn't love you. The reason isn't that he doesn't hear you. The reason isn't that he doesn't care or has abandoned you because you've done something to deserve it. We can know that even though we don't ever fully know why things are happening the way they're happening. We might say, well, yeah, but I'm a special circumstance. I should never have darkened the door of a church. If you only knew what I have done. Notice that it's not only when Jesus sees Mary weeping that he's driven to weep. It's when he sees the Jews weeping, some of these very Jews will witness this miracle and turn right around and go tell the Pharisees in the next section. He sees his enemies weeping, and he weeps for them, and he weeps with them. So if that's the case, then you and I are not exempt from that. He feels the pain of every human being. So two, God weeps with us in our suffering. But three, if human beings cause evil and suffering and deserve it, and God wants to end evil and suffering and weeps with us in it, then the dilemma is how is God going to end evil and suffering without ending us? And the answer is, it comes at a cost. There's a price that will be paid. He will offer us his life, and it will cost, us his own. It cost him his own. Jesus is fully God and fully man, the resurrection and the life, and the one who weeps with us in our suffering. He loves this family. How does he love them? He loves them by giving the truth when what they need is truth, by weeping with us when we are weeping and third, love rages. What do I mean by that? We've talked about who Jesus is. Now what is he going to do? What is he going to do? He's, he's going to fight for us. Verse 33 says, When Jesus saw her weeping in the Jews also, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Then verse 38 also says, He was deeply moved again, when he came to the tomb. Now, every commentator that I read and every sermon or resource that I listened to points out that most English translators are not willing to take the plunge on this one. And if you just look up the word that's translated as deeply moved, 
Actually, the, the New Living Translation kind of gets it right. That's the only one I found. Uh, the word means to roar with anger, to storm with anger, according to the Complete Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament. Most translators aren't willing to go there. The implication is Jesus marches to the tomb in a rage of fury. He is angry, ready to go to battle with his age-old enemy, death. Who's he angry with? He's not angry at Mary and Martha because it's, it's not for something they've done. We know that because he weeps with them. He's, he doesn't say, well, you got what you deserved. He's not angry with God. God, why did you allow this to happen? He is God, he says. So he's not angry with himself. Sometimes that's our response, is to be angry with God. I think God can handle that. But knowing that Jesus weeps with us and is enraged with death itself and fights for us, perhaps our anger needs to be diverted to a different place. Jesus is angry with death. And this goes all the way back to the beginning. John says Jesus is the word who was with God in the beginning and by him all things came into being and nothing that has been made was made without him. And in the beginning, the Hebrew words that are used to describe the creation of the world, some commentators look at that and they say this is a resurrection story, which doesn't make a lot of sense if there was nothing existing before it to resurrect. But the language is the language that's repeated all throughout the Old Testament, formless and void, desolate, inhospitable to life. That's what the creation was at first. And darkness was over the surface of the abyss. What's the abyss? Jonah talks about God reaching into the abyss and pulling him out. David talks about the, the darkness of the abyss surrounding him in death as his enemies are about to surround him and kill him. Um, the abyss, Ezekiel, the abyss, Jeremiah, it's always death. And God said, let there be light when darkness was over the abyss of death. And the waters were parted and land emerged and the, the Psalms are a lot more poetic, and Job is a lot more poetic about it when he says, you pushed back the chaos of the waters. You set their boundaries, and you said, thus far you can come, and no farther. And he established a place, and he separated things out like a garden in order to establish a place where life could emerge, and life could flourish. And he finished the heavens and the earth, and all of his heavenly hosts are there, a grand army standing guard, ready to protect the life that is to be there and to hold back the darkness and the death. And he puts his human image bearers in a garden and says, now you be about promoting and multiplying life and serve and guard the creation you've been given. And what did they do? They invited chaos. They invited death. They chose a different master. They became subservient to a beast of the field and took on the pattern of the beast, which is to take what you want at the exploitation of others. And they brought in death at the very beginning. And over and over again, God has a fight with death. We just sung about it. I'm no longer a slave to fear. You split the seas, the abyss, death, so I could walk right through it. Death is hammering down uh, through the Egyptians on the Israelites, and God parts death, the seas, the abyss, so they can walk through on dry land and live and have life. And that's what God is doing. He goes to war with death. And so now, once again, Jesus is going to battle to split the seas again, to open the tomb, and to cause Lazarus to live because God is all about life. He hates death. So love rages against death. But how can he end it without ending us? He knew that to give Lazarus life, he would have to die. And immediately, some of the Jews turn right around and go to the Pharisees. I got a little bit ahead of myself. One more point. Love dies. Not in itself, 
love itself doesn't die, but rather the one who loves must die to self. If you're truly going to love something, it will always cost you something. I listened to a message from Tim Keller who pointed this out, and he pointed out parenting. You know, if you go into parenting with the view that I'm going to preserve my comfort, my privacy, my goals, my hobbies, my desire, my security, everything. And that's going to be number one. And I'm not going to lay that aside. And then somehow I'm going to love my kids too. He said, your kids are going to be pretty messed up. But by the same token, love isn't permissive parenting. And if you make your children the center of the universe, they're going to be really messed up too. And I can identify with that. Man, you know, I'm sitting there with these ungrateful little dictators who are fighting with each other, and it's one thing after another. It's cleaning, it's diapers, it's dishes, it's breaking up the fights, not having a clue what to do with them. And I'm just like sitting here stewing, and I was like, do you have any idea what this costs me to do this for you? You ungrateful little, you know, I have no idea what I would rather be doing right now. I want to go, you know, do this or travel or photography or what, you know, all the things I'm interested in that I have to die to in order to serve you. And so often I treat my kids as an inconvenience because it's really hard to die to yourself. But that's what love does. You can't love something without dying to something. And it's not always permanent. It's for a time. There will be a season, right? And then everyone says, oh, and then when that happens, you'll turn around and be like, what a jerk I was. I just want one more of those days to come back. And, you know, yeah, I get it. And I try to remind myself of that. It's true. Um, and there are many, many wonderful good moments that do make it worth it. It's true. It's worth it. Um, they're worth it. And hopefully, if I don't destroy it too much, their future is worth it. Um, so, love dies. Love dies to self. And that's how Jesus will end suffering and death without ending us, because he will die. The story is a sign because it points to his own death and resurrection. Lazarus would rise, but he would die again for a while. Jesus' resurrection is eternal. He had a different kind of body, passed through the grave clothes. Nobody had to unwrap him. It's what our body is going to be like. Still physical, eats fish, touch me and see, I'm not a ghost, but powerful, new, incorruptible. And that's what he says, if, if you've got me, I've got you, and that's what you'll have. You'll have life. You won't miss out on anything. Jesus, as fully God and fully man, succumbs to the death that man deserves, so that as the resurrection and the life, he can grant life to any who believe in him. He died our death and rose for our life, and reigns at the right hand of God, granting life to any who believe in his name. So a few takeaways, and just to give credit, I borrowed some of these from that Tim Keller message, um, but they were too good to pass up. One, if Jesus is who he says he is, one implication is we have to stop putting limits on what he can do. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And there is no limit to what he can do for you. But not as the center of the universe, me, serve me, not as a personal butler. But Jesus says, take away the stone. And Martha, who had just said she believes, says, Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor. He's been in there four days. He's dead. Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Faith is accompanied with action. Don't limit what Jesus can do. Act on your faith. Step out in your faith. 
But again, it's not just what he can do for us as though he only exists for our self-help as a personal assistant. No, to remove all limits on what he can do for us means to truly surrender and trust in him. So we don't put limits on what Jesus can do. But two, stop putting limits on your allegiance to him. If this is who he is, if this is really who he is, the resurrection and the source of life, the one who breathes life, the one who holds keys and says, if you've got me, I've got you, I'll get you in the door. If he holds the universe together with the word of his power, is this the kind of God that you ask to come in and be your personal assistant? To only call on him when you need a favor or when something goes wrong? No. This means we pull out all the stops. We surrender everything. Even those areas where we've said, I trust Jesus and I'll follow you this far, but I couldn't give this up, or I couldn't give you that, or I couldn't trust you here. This means we're challenged in those areas. If this is who he is, then we take the limits off of our allegiance to him. And third, don't live in the fear of death. And we might say, well, I don't live in the fear of death. Okay, do you have a bucket list? You live in the fear of death. In other words, I can't die without first doing this. I can't die without accomplishing that. I can't die without first going there. Now, I'm not going to pick on you if you have a bucket list. I'll probably have a bucket list. That's great. But don't live believing that you only have one chance. Because if he is the life and the resurrection, then you're not going to miss out on anything. There is nothing, there is no shortage that you will ever experience. And so you can live for him fully and at peace, knowing that there's no anxiety about what you don't get to experience in life. Because you will. Because he is the erection and the life. So don't live in the fear of death. For refusing to live in fear, love like Jesus. How did Jesus love? He tells the truth when the truth is needed. He becomes vulnerable and weak and weeps when weeping is needed. He rages with anger appropriately when anger is needed. In your anger, do not sin, Paul says. Anger is not a sin. It has to be directed rightly. He goes to battle for those who are victims of death with anger over death. Love rages appropriately, and love dies to self. You know, all those memes floating around on Facebook, you know, little coffee cup. When I've had my, when I've taken care of me, then I can take care of everyone else. No. Love means that you die to yourself. You die to something. There's appropriate boundaries that have to be observed. There's balance here. You know, we can get help from the word on, on what all that looks like. But if we're not willing to die, then we're not willing to love. Love like Jesus. Last little detail, I'll give you this. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Their tradition says that later in the text, when it says that the Pharisees and the leaders tried to seek a way to kill Lazarus too, the way Lazarus responded was to flee to the island of Cyprus. And supposedly there, the apostle Paul and Barnabas found him and established him as a leader of a church in Larnaca. Now, that's all kind of, where do they get that? Is that true? How would we know if it's true? We don't know. It's not in scripture. But... In the 600s AD, Cyprus was taken over by the the Arabs. And then in 890, when they took the island of Cyprus back, a tomb was discovered. And in that tomb was an ossuary box where they keep the bones of the dead. And on that box was an inscription. The inscription said this, Lazarus, friend of Jesus, 
four days dead. And supposedly that box is now in a uh, church somewhere as a holy relic in an Eastern Orthodox church. But interesting, these stories aren't just stories. Let's pray. Father, if that's who you are, then for some of us, things have got to change. No matter work can get that student into a locked door outside of breaking a window. And your kingdom doesn't have any windows we can break into. And we might think that our good works will make us acceptable, that our religious practice makes us acceptable, that a prophet or a rabbi or a teacher or a guru says that um, for some reason we're acceptable to come in. But you stand there with the keys and you say, I want to be your friend. And if you've got me, You've got the way in. Come to me, and I'll let you in. That's all you need. You just need me. And God, what about all of our sin? What about our brokenness? What about our uncleanliness, our violence, our own bloody hands? It costs you your own blood to let us in. And now you stand at the gate and you say, I'm giving you myself. Come in. God, we want to receive that today. Especially if anybody here hasn't received you. I just want to give the opportunity to pray. Have some elders come up front. I've got Dave up front. I'll be here. I'd love to pray with you. But more than this, Lord, help us not to live in the fear of death. Help us to love rightly, to tell the truth, to weep, to have the right kind of anger when it's needed, and to die to ourselves. That's how the gospel is spread. Mostly, God, we just need you. We need more of you. You are the resurrection and the life. You offer us yourself. Help us to stop putting limits on you and to come to you. We come to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.